Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
GCA, kicking and screaming, has joined the 21st century. You can tell. <laughs> I have a wireless microphone now, which means I'm no longer wearing the leash, which I have worn for 21 years standing up here. And I think you all have gotten used to me being leashed to the pulpit. That's right. If you act up now, I can get to you. I can walk anywhere in the building with this thing on. And so I have a newfound confidence. So be very, very careful. We're in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 17. Let's see how much you remember. The book of Revelation is the revealing, the apocalypsis, the uncovering of what exactly? Jesus Christ. Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this time through the book of Revelation, I have really been trying to emphasize that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of the details that we have been looking at for the last several weeks and months about the trouble to come, about the tribulation, about God's wrath, about the rising up and the falling down of nations, all of that detail that we've been looking at in the book of Revelation is all pointing toward a culmination. And that culmination is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And not just revealing him as a babe in a manger, At this time of year, we're going to start hearing Christmas songs everywhere we go, and we're going to start seeing manger scenes popping up everywhere, and drawings of Jesus as a baby in a manger, because people like to keep him a baby in a manger. When he returns, he's not coming back as a baby in a manger. He's coming back as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And that is what is described starting at verse 14 of Revelation 17. But because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Revelation 17, we're going to start reading it from verse 1 just to build up speed so that when we hit verse 14, we understand the context of it. Chapter 17, verse 1. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot, who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. That is the word pornuo. It is the word from which we get pornography. These acts of immorality, this woman, this harlot, who is under the judgment of God, has been engaged with the kings of the earth in these detestable actions. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of the abominations of the uncleanness of her immorality. And upon her head a name was written, 
a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and that he is not, and that he will come. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth. And is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings from the beast for an hour. And these have one purpose, and they give their power and their authority to the beast. Now the new stuff, verse 14. And these, these ten kings... These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. After all the detail that John has gone into, after all the detail that Daniel has gone into, after all the detail that the Bible provides us about these kings, about these kingdoms, about the history of the world, it culminates in the return of Jesus Christ, and John uses this very direct, very simple phrase without any detail and just simply says, the lamb will overcome them. Like, we don't have to discuss that. The simple fact is, he is king of kings, he is lord of lords, he's going to overcome the kingdoms of this world. He is going to be the one who is going to judge the woman. He is going to be the one who establishes his own kingdom. Because, as verse 14 says he is the Lord of Lords and he is the King of Kings. I want to talk about that phrase for just a moment because we are going to go back and look at some of the Old Testament prophecies leading up to this moment. And we're going to see that Daniel himself explains to Nebuchadnezzar that he is a King of Kings. Obviously, he was not saying you're Christ or on par with Christ. What he was saying is, there are a lot of kings in this region. There are a lot of rulers over different areas of the region. But you are superior to all of them. You are the king over even other kings. And so you are the king of kings. What we've seen so far in chapter 17 is a succession of kings. We're told that they are seven kings in verse 10. Five are fallen, one is. The other has not yet come. And then we're told that the ten horns which you saw are ten kings in verse 12. And so there's this succession of earthly kings. All of human history is made up of a succession of human kings. 
When Christ comes back to establish his kingdom, he is coming back as the king of all those kings. He is the superior king over all other kings. He is going to rule and reign over all the kingdoms of this world. There are no other kings that are going to be able to withstand him because he is not only king of kings, but all the way through the Old Testament, we see this language. All the way through the Bible, we see this language of lordship. Whether we're talking about Sarah calling Abraham Lord, recognizing him as her husband who had authority over her, or whether we're talking about Jesus on the planet and people referring to him as Lord. Anybody who was in slavery would refer to their master as Lord. It's the one who has authority over you, the one who has power over you. In the whole history of the world, there have been a whole lot of human beings who have had a whole lot of power over other human beings. When Jesus comes back, he's going to have all the power over all the human beings. Even the ones who are kings, even the ones who are lords, he will be powerful over and above them. They will all give obeisance to him. Therefore, he is not just king of kings. He is not just Lord of Lords, John is trying to sweep the whole panoply of human control and human authority and human power and is saying when Christ comes back, all power, all authority, all lordship, all kingship is wrapped up in him. And that's what the phrase King of Kings, Lord of Lords means. He's coming back with all the authority. And that is why I think John can say, so briefly, that the Lamb will overcome them. Why will he overcome them? Because of who he is. Because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the one who has all the power, the one who is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Who's that? That's us. When he comes back, exactly like Jude said, that he's coming back with the ten thousands of his saints. When he comes back, he's returning with his church to establish his kingdom. In fact, somebody look up 1 Timothy 6.15, if you would. 1 Timothy 6.15. You got that, Micah? Actually, we'll probably visit this whole passage as we go through the morning. But Mike is going to read 1 Timothy 6.15 for us, where Paul himself, in describing Jesus to Timothy, his son, uses this same language. Read it, Micah. Which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. So Paul uses this as a descriptor of who Jesus is. It describes what he is like. John picks it up and says the one who is returning is going to establish himself as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. His kingdom is going to reign over all the other kingdoms of the history of this entire world. And he, the angel, said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's his way of saying everybody. Everybody on planet Earth, doesn't matter what people you are, 
Doesn't matter what nation you are, what language you speak, doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter what people group you come from, Jesus will be Lord over you. He will express his kingship over you. Verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. And now you may ask, well, how is it that these ten kings who are getting their power from the beast, how is it that they're going to turn on the harlot? The explanation is in verse 17, which is one of the most sovereign verses in the entire Bible. Because now we're looking at God-hating people who are going to do according to their God-hating will and turn against the harlot system and everything that the harlot and Babylon represent. And they are going to hate the harlot. And they're going to have this common purpose and their common purpose is to make her desolate and naked and burn her up with fire and why do they have that kind of change of heart considering that they are god-hating poor new old people of the planet because says verse 17 for god has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose it is god's purpose god intends to do away with Babylon. God, as part of his return as king of kings and lord of lords, he is going to reign over the systems of this world and destroy the systems of this world. And the methodology by which he destroys the systems of this world is these 10 kings that are going to rise up who are getting their power from Satan himself. How sovereign is God that he can put in those hearts to execute his own purpose. We've seen it so often in the Bible, whether we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar, whether we're talking about Cyrus. We see frequently people who have no intention to worship the God of Israel, who have no intention to worship Yahweh, and yet they end up doing exactly what God told them to do. How often have we seen God bring down other nations in order to punish his people Israel. And then he will turn around and judge the nation that came down on Israel, even though they were doing exactly what God intended them to do. This is the kind of sovereignty that we're talking about that you see in the book of Genesis, and you see in the book of Revelation, and you see it everywhere in between, these declarations of God being able to use even the wicked of this world in order to accomplish His superior will. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until, and this is the phrase that we're going to concentrate on this morning, until the words of God should be fulfilled. In other words, God is so true to his own word Everything that he has ever said, every word that he has ever uttered, Jesus said not one jot, not one tittle of it was going to pass away until everything, all of it, is accomplished. That's pretty good authority when Jesus says every word of God is going to be accomplished. Here is John saying that the way that the history of the world wraps up is a testimony to the word of God and the reason 
aside from just his sovereignty, the reason that the kings of the earth are going to destroy the harlot woman is because that is the will of God who gives them a common purpose and they give their kingship to the beast until the word of God should be fulfilled. Okay, so great big picture. I started this morning by saying, what is the revelation revealing? And you all properly said, Christ is revealing Christ. Okay, so whether God was intending for there to be a baby in a manger, which he predicted all the way back in Isaiah, and then that actually happened. Or whether we're talking about him being born in Bethlehem, Judah. Whether we're talking about the Davidic kingdom and the throne of David. There's all these prophecies in the Old Testament about who Jesus is, what he's going to do, how he's going to get here. And all of that actually happened. Here is a prophecy about Jesus when he returns that he is going to ruin the kings of the earth, be the king of kings, be the Lord of lords, and that is all in keeping with the word of God. So where does it say that? Where does it say that Jesus is coming back to establish an everlasting kingdom because all of those prophecies of Christ's return and his establishment of an actual, physical, literal kingdom on planet Earth, those prophecies have to come true. Or the Bible's not true. Do you get my premise so far? I'm on a wireless mic. If you don't get it, I can come slap you. I can, I can get to you at this point. So, what we're going to concentrate on this morning is the fact that the Bible does predict the return of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, that he's going to return during the time of the ten kings, exactly like Revelation says, and all of those prophecies must come true if this is actually the word of God. Now, as John just said, five of the kingdoms that are talked about in the Old Testament have already been. They've already passed off the stage of history. And then he says, right now there is one that isn't, and he's coming again. Okay, that has to happen. But the previous kingdoms that have ever ruled over God's people, Israel, were all physical, literal, genuine kingdoms. And in that succession of literal, genuine kingdoms, there's the return of Christ to set up his kingdom. There's no way to suddenly leap to well, then that has to be a spiritual kingdom. No, this has to be a literal, physical kingdom. The language we're going to look at this morning places it on planet Earth. So Jesus is coming back as king of the kings of the earth, as lord over the lords of the earth, and he is going to establish his kingdom in keeping with all the prophecies we're going to look at this morning. Turn to the book of Daniel. We're going to Daniel 2 to start our morning. This sequence should be burned into your memory. We have referenced it a few times, but in looking at it in the past, we have emphasized Daniel's accuracy in predicting the kingdoms that were going to rise up in the Middle East. This time, we're going to emphasize the culmination of those kingdoms, which is the return of Christ and the establishment of the everlasting kingdom. Exactly like the book of Revelation says that all these things are going to go the way that God says they're going to go because the word of God has to be fulfilled. 
And by the way, when the word of God declares that the word of God has to be fulfilled, that's pretty good authority. This is not a jump ball. God's reputation is on the line. If any single one of these things does not happen, well, then the Bible's not true and we can all go home and there's a lot of sinning to go do because the Bible's just not true. But all of these prophecies have to come true. Daniel 2, I am going to start reading in verse 31. This will sound familiar to you, I'm confident. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. And that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. And the head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of brass, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay. So when exactly is this stone that is not made with human hands, going to come and strike the kingdoms of the earth during the time that there is the ten-toed kingdom of iron and clay on the planet, which, according to the book of Revelation, hasn't occurred yet. But it is during those ten kings, the very kings we're reading about in Revelation right now, it is during that time that Christ is going to return and is going to conquer them all. That's exactly what Daniel says. That's exactly what the dream of Nebuchadnezzar says. Christ is going to come back and strike the feet of iron and clay. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold are all crushed at the same time. That's just different language to say exactly what the book of Revelation says. Christ is going to come back and destroy the kingdoms of this world, set himself up as king of kings, lord of lords. So all of those previous kingdoms reaching back to Nebuchadnezzar and reaching back to Babylon are all going to be crushed at the same time and become like chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind is going to carry them away so that not a trace of them is found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. In the book of Revelation, what were the mountains identified as? Kingdoms. So that stone is going to come back, crush all the other kingdoms of the world, and become the significant kingdom. Exactly like the book of Revelation says. Verse 36, that was the dream, and now I'm going to tell you the interpretation. You, O king... Are the king of kings. There's the example of Daniel using the language of king of kings about Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar did reign over other kings. He conquered other kings and kingdoms and ruled over them even though he would leave puppet kings in each of those areas who did obeisance to him. And so he can be referred to as a king of kings. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the power, the kingdom, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And after that, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. We know that that's the Medo-Persian and the Grecian empires. 
Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks into pieces, it will crush and break all these things, all these kingdoms into pieces. And in that you saw the feet and the toes. How many toes? Ten. Did anybody need to count their feet to answer that question? Okay. Inasmuch as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will not have the toughness of iron. And inasmuch as you saw iron mixed with common clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be brittle. And in that day, you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as the iron does not combine with the pottery. That's a same description as we're getting in the book of Revelation, that there's going to be these ten kings, and God is going to have to put in them to have a common purpose because they don't get along with each other. And inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Why is it true and trustworthy? Well, because it's a revelation from God that stretches all the way to the book of Revelation. It is a common theme. It is a common story that runs throughout the Bible. Turn to Daniel 7 for a moment. Daniel 7, and we're going to start reading at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed and he wrote the dream down and he related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in the visions of the night and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. By the way, in the book of Revelation, what did the angel tell John the great sea represented? People, all the people groups. Okay, so same imagery here. The four winds of heaven were stirring up all the people groups, and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side. And three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. By the way, we don't have time to go into the detail right now, but we've gone into this detail before in the past. This is a perfect, accurate description of Medo-Persia, where Persia rose up against the Medes because the bear is lifted up on one side. And then Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire, when Alexander died, his kingdom was divided among his four generals, exactly like is described here, that that beast had four heads and dominion was given to the four heads. 
After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured, and it crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had, what a surprise, ten horns. Okay, that helps us identify it, because in the book of Revelation, we're told that those ten horns are ten kings. While I was contemplating the horns... Behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them. This is the one that John refers to as even an eighth, and he's part of the seven. The little horn came up among them. Three of those first horns were pulled up by its roots before it. Apparently, he's going to conquer three of them. And behold, the horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. That's the character we know as the little horn, or we sometimes refer to as the Antichrist, and he is described exactly the same way here and in Revelation. I kept looking, says verse 9, until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were like burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads, uncountable numbers, upon myriads, were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were open. This is judgment. In the sequence, when does that judgment from God occur? After the ten-toed nation. That's the sequence in Daniel. We've seen it twice now in Daniel. That's the sequence in the book of Revelation. So the books are opened, and I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which that little horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain, and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of those beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to each of them for an appointed period of time. Okay, it's just like the book of Revelation, that there's going to be a period of time for each of these kingdoms. Then those kingdoms are going to fall. The final of those kingdoms is this ten-toed kingdom. During that ten-toed kingdom, judgment is going to occur. Here's what it looks like. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days when... Does the book of Daniel describe the coming of Christ? After that ten-toed kingdom. When is the ten-toed kingdom? After the succession of kingdoms that we have already seen. And that matches perfectly what the book of Revelation says. He came up to the Ancient of Days and he was presented before him. And to him, this one like the Son of Man, clearly a reference to Christ, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Okay, now, are we going to spiritualize that kingdom? Well, not if we read the rest of the context, because his kingdom is described this way, that all the peoples and nations and men of every language will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay, so there's a succession of earthly kingdoms. 
the culmination of the earthly kingdoms is Christ returning and establishing his kingdom. And that kingdom is not a heavenly kingdom where he is ruling over the saved, where he is ruling over the elect, where he is ruling over the saints. The kingdom that is coming is one where he rules over all peoples and nations and men of every language. That can only be an earthly kingdom because in context to every other kingdom that is leading up to him is an earthly, physical, literal kingdom. So if you just let the words be consistent and say what they say, it's impossible to come away with anything except Christ is coming back to establish a kingdom. When? When the ten-toed kingdom is happening on planet Earth. Is that clear enough? Mm -hmm. How many times have we read it so far? The answer is three. We've read it three times so far this morning. But it's out of Revelation, out of Daniel. Isaiah 40, if you want to turn to it, is Isaiah 40. I'm going to start reading at verse 9. I really was going to read more out of Daniel here, but the clock is working against me. But you need to know that the vision that Daniel just saw is interpreted. And in verse 26, it says, But the court will sit for judgment. The dominion of that little horn is going to be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions, all the other kings will serve and obey him. Why? King of kings, Lord of lords. And at this point, the revelation ended, says Daniel. Okay, let's look at Isaiah 40 for just a moment. Isaiah says, starting in verse 9, Get yourself up on the mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. He will come with strength. He will come with dominion. And how will he do it? The next phrase says, with his arm ruling for him. Throughout the book of Isaiah, when we went through it, we saw that Isaiah's reference to the arm of God was always a reference to Christ. So here is another prophecy saying that God is going to rule and he's going to do it through Christ. His arm will be ruling for him. Behold, his reward the reward of the arm, the reward of Christ. His reward is with him and his judgment. His recompense is before him. And like a shepherd who will tend to his flock, in his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens by a span? And calculated the dust of the earth by a measure. And weighed the mountains in a balance. And weighed the hills on a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who as his counselor has ever informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. 
Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor the beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. In other words, when he comes back in the power of God, when he as the arm of God demonstrates that he is establishing his rule and his kingdom, all the nations are indeed, all the people groups, all the tongues are indeed going to worship and obey him. Why? Because they're nothing. And he's everything. Okay, so that's Isaiah 40. Does that need to come true? Yes. It's right there in the Bible. It has to happen. Christ has to come back and conquer the nations. There's no way to make that a heavenly spiritualized battle. He has to come back and actually conquer the nations. Exactly like Daniel said, grinding them to powder and they all blow away. Exactly like the book of Revelation says. He's coming back as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. How many times is the Bible saying this same thing? It has to come true. That's my point. You probably know Isaiah 9. You're going to hear it given the season of the year that we are in. You're going to see Christmas cards that say, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. Because that is a very nice Christmassy kind of sentiment. But the rest of that passage says this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Okay, is there endless peace on the planet right now? No. No. How is that endless peace and everlasting kingdom going to be established? When he comes back, the very same one who was a child born and a son given is the very same one who is going to establish his government. When Jesus was here on the planet, did he establish a government? No. No, he purposefully did not establish a government. All the governments of this world, all the kingdoms of this world, he's coming back to establish his authority, his government. He is going to govern all people, all nations, all tongues. And the outgrowth of that is going to be peace without end. And then he brings up, Isaiah brings up the Davidic covenant. Are you familiar with the Davidic covenant? We've talked about this many times in the past, but King David was given a covenant He wanted to make a house for the Lord. He said, I'm living in a house of cedar, and the ark of God is living in a tent. I need to build a tabernacle, a a, a temple for it. His prophet, Nathan, comes to him and says, uh, God said, no, you're not going to build a house for him. God said, have I ever asked you for a house? Have I ever told you to build such a thing? And then God says, I'm going to build you a house. It's the word dynasty. And he says, out of your loins, your offspring are going to rule on your throne forever over the collective 12 tribes of Israel and over all the nations of the earth. Okay, so we know that in order for that to happen, it has to be Christ himself satisfying and fulfilling the Davidic covenant because the Davidic covenant is repeated a couple of times in the Old Testament. So does it have to happen? Yes. Yeah. Isaiah even talks about the increase of the government and peace of Jesus, the coming of the baby in the manger. He, in the midst of that, declares that the throne of David 
is where he's going to sit. And on his kingdom, exactly like the Davidic covenant says, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from now on, even forever. Have we seen the forever throne of David reestablished yet? No. Does it have to happen? Yes. And then look, the next phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Yes, he will. The same way we read in Revelation that they're going to do this because the scripture has to be satisfied. It has to be fulfilled. Every word that God has ever spoken actually has to come to its complete fruition. Here Isaiah says the same thing, that Christ is going to establish a government on the throne of David over the kingdom of David. He's going to order it and establish it. There's going to be proper judgment. There's going to be proper judgment. There's going to be peace without end from that time even evermore, the everlasting kingdom. And then we are promised the zeal, the hotness is that word, the heat of God. The serious intention of God is going to perform this. Okay, so we look at the world right now. Don't look at the world right now. But if you look at the world right now, it seems like, well, well, that can't happen. I mean, there's so many rebels on the planet, and there's so many nations, and so many kings, and so many wars, and so many arguments, and so many philosophies, and there's so many cynics, and there's just so much sin, and there's just so much utter rebellion against God. How can there be a time of everlasting peace and proper judgment and proper justice on planet Earth? It's hard for us to imagine because we've never experienced it. But what's more true, your experience or the word of God that declares that the zeal of God is going to do this? Yeah, the word of God already declared to David, I'm going to do this. Isaiah picks it up and says, God's going to do this. Okay, you've got plenty of testimony that God is intending to do this. Zechariah 14, the first four verses say, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Zechariah is predicting a time when Israel is going to be reestablished again. Exactly like Isaiah said. That Christ is going to come in power and establish them in judgment and justice. God is going to bring justice. A day is coming for the Lord when everything that was taken away from you is going to be redistributed among you. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured and the houses plundered and the women ravaged. And half of the city will be exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight all those nations. Sounds very Armageddon-y, doesn't it? Armageddon-y is a new word that I have just coined. Use it later in a sentence. Then the Lord is going to come and fight for you the way that he fights in the day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, very significant. Among the last places that Christ ever stood on the planet, he stood on the Mount of Olives. When the Spirit of God left the temple in the Old Testament, they said the Spirit of God went east 
and rested for a moment on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is a very significant touch point between heaven and earth. And when Christ returns, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. And you want to see power? You want to see authority? When his feet touch the mountain, the mountain splits. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is on the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move to the north and the other half will move to the south. Has that happened yet? No. Does it have to? Yes. Yeah, otherwise the word of God is not true. Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord, Yahweh, will be the only one and his name the only one. Okay, so there's another prediction from Zechariah that Yahweh is going to be the king over all the earth. I'm not going to ask again how many times we've heard this, but it certainly should be mounting up in your head that there is this huge weight of evidence in the Bible that Christ is going to return and establish an everlasting kingdom, and it's going to happen during the time of the ten-toed kingdoms, and it's going to happen in accordance with the word of God, which the book of Revelation says absolutely has to come true. So then you get into the New Testament. Jesus is born. And then he's in the temple when the old prophet holds him up and declares that he is the Lord that God has sent to Israel. And he says this in Luke 1.32, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father, David. That's right in the middle of the whole Christmas story. The child who was born, Isaiah said that he was going to take on the throne of David. Then he's actually born, and a prophet in the temple holds him up and says he's going to have the throne of his father, David. How sure and certain is the Davidic covenant? How sure and certain is this throne of David? I got to go with pretty sure and certain. I skipped over Jeremiah 23.5 because I'm talking real fast. I'm trying to get this all in this morning. But even Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a righteous branch. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. His kingdom of justice is going to be on planet earth. Are you tired of this yet? Nope. Have I bored anybody yet? Are you learning a little bit of Bible this morning? Acts 1.1. This is Luke writing to Theophilus. You're probably familiar with this exchange, but I want you to hear it in this context, building this argument. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, 
appearing to them over a period of 40 days. So after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days. And what did they talk about? Well, according to Luke, he was speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. In a moment, we're going to see how the apostles understood that conversation about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Where would they get that thought? I mean, if Jesus had just spent 40 days explaining to them that the kingdom was spiritual, would they have asked that question? What they know is the Old Testament, which was the whole of their scripture at that time. They know the Davidic covenant. They know the promises of the restoration of Israel. They know the promises where God says, I'm going to gather you from all the places I scattered you. They know all that, and then 40 days of Jesus talking about the kingdom leads them to the question, okay, when? Because their concept of the kingdom is, yeah, that's good for Israel. The restoration of Israel, and you're the son of David, you're going to sit on David's throne, and we're going to rule over all the nations, including our enemies. So yeah, when are you doing that? Let's get going on that thing. Not that they use the phrase, let's get going on that thing. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, you bunch of goofballs, don't you know that this is all a spiritual kingdom? That's not what he said. They asked him a time question. Is it at this time that you're going to do it? He gives them a time answer. It's not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Back in Matthew 24, as Jesus was describing the time of the tribulation, the time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again, and describing his return, described it exactly that way, Matthew 24, 30, and then there shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jesus said, I'm going away in clouds, I'm coming back in clouds. He's coming back visibly enough that the people of earth, the God-hating, sinful people of planet earth, are going to see him coming. And the tribes of Israel are going to mourn 
because Zachariah said they're going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. And that image of Christ, the sign of Christ in the sky, and then he is returning on clouds, is a demonstration of his power and great glory, because whether we're talking about Ezekiel or whether we're talking about the visions of Isaiah, God represents himself as having this chariot of clouds with burning wheels, with his throne established on it. And how is Jesus coming back? with images of that same power and that same authority and that same dominion. A moment ago, I had Micah read out of 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to read a little bit larger section now. This is Paul talking to his son in the ministry, Timothy, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who testified a good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's describing the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, which is why the disciples said, now? And he said, it's not for you to know when. Instead, you go testify of me now. But I'll be coming back in clouds of glory. The angels themselves testified to that. So keep the commandment, follow after Christ without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone, all by himself, possesses immortality, and he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. And to him is the honor and the eternal dominion. Amen. That takes us to Revelation 11, where we've already read the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Go back to Revelation 17. That was all introduction. Go to Revelation 19. We're skipping ahead just a little bit. We're going to close on this description. I hope that I have built my case this morning. We know what has to be happening on planet Earth when Christ returns. We know what he's going to do when he returns. In chapter 19, starting at verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon that horse was called Faithful and True. Proper names for Jesus Christ, the Faithful One, the Honest One, the True One. The one who could say, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. Why would he have many crowns on his head? Because he is the king of kings. On his head there are many crowns, many diadems. And he has a name written upon himself, which no one knows except himself. 
and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Those are those saints that we keep referring to who are coming back with him. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, the Sovereign, the All-Powerful. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midheaven, Come and assemble yourself for the great supper of the Lord. Now, back to chapter 17. Starting at verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, and they have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast, making the beast, the Antichrist, the little horn, all the more powerful exactly the way Daniel described. And these, these ten horns, these ten kings, will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Well, yeah, after everything we've read this morning, yeah, the Lamb is going to overcome them because he is Lord of Lords, and he is King of Kings, and those that are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. So why are we going to be with him? Why do we care about him now? Why do we have faith in him now? Why do we have confidence in him now? Because he called us. He drew us. And why did he draw us in particular? Because we are the chosen. We're the ones who are called. We're the ones who are chosen. We're the ones who are eternally secured with him. And the one who eternally secured you gave his life for you And he can keep you despite you because he is king of kings and lord of lords. When I say worship Christ, I'm not saying worship Christ because of what you can get out of it or it'll make your life better. I'm saying worship Christ because he deserves it. And we saw several times this morning he is the only one and his name is the only one. We worship Yahweh, we worship his son, because his Holy Spirit was placed in us, and we recognize him to be the absolute sovereign of the universe, and the sovereign of the universe is coming to establish a kingdom here on planet Earth. There just is no other way to read it, and he's going to come prove that he is everything we have ever read and believed he is, and that is going to be a really good day. Questions? We are going to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and his grace. I hope this morning I encouraged you to look at him.
It is a wonderful thing to know that the Savior who bled and sacrificed and died for us, the purchased possession, well, he also happens to be King and King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and so we are greatly protected. He protects us above from the wrath of God, and as King, he protects us from all the nations that would come against us, so... I mean, that is a complete and total protection, and we are secure in His hands, and that is just, what a Savior, what a Savior indeed. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.